Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60 day money back guarantee, and US News and World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/slash mind of a monster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Why are all these murders here? Why? Well, one reason is that we have a homicidal maniac who's been running around and we know he's killed 10 people. This man was six foot nine. He had been thinking about this for years. He was like a hunter. When we recovered her head, you could see where the darts had hit her cheeks. From 1972 to 1973, locals in Santa Cruz, California were terrorized by not one, but two serial killers. Their names were Edmund Kemper and Herbert Mullen. They operated independently and over an 11-month period claimed the lives of 21 individuals. Young children, teenagers, female hitchhikers, even a priest was slain. No one was safe. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster. The Co-Ed Killer and Herbert Mullen. Episode 5, Hunting the Co-Ed Killer. It's April 23rd, 1973. It's early. The sun hasn't even fully risen. At his home, a young detective, Mickey Alufi, is about to be awoken by a phone call that will stay with him forever. That fateful day at five o'clock in the morning, I get a phone call from Jimmy Connor at Santa Cruz Police Department. And Jimmy says, do you know uh, Ed Kemper? And I said, yeah, I do, why? 
And he said, because he's on the phone right now from Pueblo, Colorado, saying that he just, he's killed his mother and her best friend. So five o'clock in the morning, I'm standing there with the telephone and I can just feel all the blood drained down to my feet. Just weeks earlier, Mickey had confiscated a gun from Kemper. He heads straight back to the house in Aptis, Santa Cruz. Sergeant Stony Brook was a shift sergeant at that time. So he met me there with a couple other people. And we checked the neighborhood. Nobody's seen or heard anything suspicious. We did talk to the people upstairs and they said, well, I haven't really noticed anything, but there's kind of a, a strange odor coming up, you know? So we figured that was enough probable cause. So we broke a window and went inside. We went through the apartment real quick and went to the closet in his mother's room, opened up the closet door, and there was a big pile there, was covered with a blanket. And so we pulled the blanket back a little bit. And I remember specifically seeing hair and flesh. And that's when we, okay, everything is established. It's time to back off. So we went back outside. We called all of the supervisors. We called the DA's office, everybody to come out and start processing the scene. Mickey is just about to go undercover as a part of a new Santa Cruz Narcotics Bureau. So here I am about to be involved in one of the more famous cases that Santa Cruz County's ever had. But I can't do it because of my potential transfer to work undercover. So when everybody got there, my boss says, look, we, we can't put you out front, but we want you to go back to the office, coordinate everything with Pueblo, Colorado. The house still needed to be checked out. That job falls to Terry Medina and his colleague, Jim Ingram. It's a little kind of a duplex uh, house in Seacliff, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. We went in through a back door. The place was spick and span, absolutely clean, just remarkably nice little place. However, if you've been to enough murder scenes or you've been around enough dead bodies, you know that there's at least one dead person in that house because you can smell it. And although we couldn't see it, we went very cautiously through each room Everything was perfectly in its place. There was no motion, no blood splatters, no nada. And so we get to the bedroom. The smell is pretty strong. The bed is made. The bedroom is clean. Everything is clean. Jim Ingram lifts up the mattress. We start looking and, oh my God, there's solid blood from the top of the mattress all the way to the floor. There's blood on the underside of the mattress. There is a note in the pool of blood against the wall on the floor. And the note says something like, sorry for the mess, gents, but I'm in a hurry. Jim starts looking in this closet. It's a pretty old style house. It's a deep closet, things hanging on one side and a whole bunch of shoe boxes and things at the end of the closet. And as he starts to take the shoe boxes out, we then start finding body parts, an arm, a leg, a head, his mother's head. So now we're working on this crime scene. We worked there all the rest of the day into the evening, but then we shut it down for the criminals to get there in the morning so that we could come back. The mom's best friend, we found her in the front closet. In this exclusive audio tape, recorded with psychiatrist Donald T. Lundy, Ed Kemper describes what happened. 
And were they shot or what? Well, my brother was hit in the head with a hammer and then a throat was shot. Then decapitated immediately. Yeah. A friend died, I don't know whether it was from strangulation or broken neck or smashed larynx. It was one of the three. The way Kemper describes this so nonchalantly is utterly chilling. Later, detectives were able to piece together what happened, as Terry Medina explains. He has this love-hate relationship with his mother. She's always yelling at him, and he always hated that. And he talks about, you're never going to yell at me again. He had cut her larynx out of her throat after he cut her head off. And you're never going to yell at me again. And he put the larynx in the garbage disposal and turned the garbage disposal on. Took her head and put it on the mantle, yelling at it and throwing darts at it. When we recovered her head, you could see where the darts had hit her cheeks. But through all this seemingly craziness, he knows that her best friend is gonna know that she's gonna be missing and he's not gonna have enough time to get away. So he calls Sally Hallett and he says, Sally, I wanna take you and mom to dinner tonight. Oh, really? Well, that would be nice. Yeah, about five o'clock. Now, the mom has already been dead, killed, put in the bathtub, washed clean, and put in parts of all of her parts, put in the back of the closet. But all that had already happened. He now has all day long to wait for Hallett to arrive. So sure enough, she shows up, and right at the front door, he just takes her coat and pushes it over her shoulder. This is an old woman now, older woman. And so she can't lift her arms up, and he's such a big, powerful guy. Boom. He, he just basically beats her to death. And then he's in a hurry, so he just pushes her in the front closet. And his car is already packed. He spent the day packing up, and off to Colorado he goes. It's mind-boggling to hear it from somebody who was actually on the scene. After the confiscation of his gun, Kemper convinces himself that law enforcement is onto him. But they're not onto him at all. The only reason detectives knew there were bodies in the house was because he'd confessed. Emerson Murray now picks up the story. So how was Edmund Kemper captured? He got in his car, got some rifles, got his weapons, and headed out of town with a bunch of no-dos. And so he was popping no-dos and driving east and he actually went past Pueblo, Colorado, and then at some point turned around and went back to Pueblo, Colorado. And he called into Santa Cruz and turned himself in. And he said, yeah, I, you know, I killed my mom and you guys are looking for me. Well, they hadn't discovered his mother's body at that point. Pueblo Police Department came and arrested Kemper uh, at that phone booth. I guess he was so tall that they said, put your hands up. And he put his hands on top of the phone booth because he was so tall. And that was the end for him. Honestly, serial killers are what nightmares are made of. And to have one who is an actual giant, I mean, it's just so visually disturbing. And things are about to get even more disturbing. Edmund Kemper also makes an astonishing confession. He is the co-ed killer. Everybody has sort of a what would I do if, what would I do if this happened? And this man was six foot nine. 
He had been thinking about this for years. He was like a hunter. He's got his pistol, he's got his knife. He's ready for this. And it's like, you can have all the scenarios in your head. What would I do when you're faced with a situation like that? There's nothing you can do. Faced with such a dangerous individual, law enforcement had to figure out a way to get him from Pueblo, Colorado, back to Santa Cruz, California, over 1,300 miles. The job falls to Mickey Alufi. So I said, okay. So I go back there to the office and I'm talking to this Captain Silva back there. And he's telling me what's up and I'm telling him what's up and all that sort of thing. And then Peter Chang walked in. Peter Chang was our district attorney at the time. And he's listening to this conversation that I'm having with Silva. So when I hung up, he said, do you know Ed Kemper? And I said, yes, I do. And he says, go pack your bag. We're going to Colorado today. So you get selected to go. I got selected to go because I have a rapport with him. So Peter and I went along with Dick Berbrugge, who was a chief inspector for the DA's office, and Chuck Shear, who was a lieutenant with Santa Cruz Police Department. We were on a plane out of San Francisco, I think about one or two in the afternoon. And so then we get to Colorado and we get to the police department about nine o'clock at night. And we're in this little room, it was Chuck Shearer and I in this interview room and they brought Ed in. And when he walked in, he looked at me and he says, hi Mickey, how you doing? So then the interview started and it was just amazing. Absolutely amazing. This guy has got total recall of everything. The detail that he went through was just astonishing. I mean, he would tell me things like how he would remove bullets and drive down the road and throw them off into a poison oak patch so that they couldn't be compared to his gun. And he talked about how many times that he had practiced picking up hitchhikers, like a thousand times. How do you recover from that? That's just, I mean, that's intense. Yeah, it takes time, it takes time. So we interviewed him for several hours there. And then next morning we had to go to the extradition hearing and extradition was waived by Kemper. So we decided, obviously we're gonna bring him back, but because of a security issue, we didn't think we should put him on an airplane. And we didn't think the people on the airplane would appreciate it either. So we just elected to drive him back because by then he had a vehicle that he was driving that he had rented in Reno, Nevada. So we figured we could just return that car and save the county a few bucks. So we started driving and we it took us three days. And I'm in the back seat with this guy for three days, just to listen to him nonstop talking. Wait a minute, you're in the back seat for three days with a serial killer? Yes. We would get to certain places and we would house him in the local jail. We did it in Laramie, Wyoming, Elko, Nevada. And then the last night was in Santa Rita jail up in Alameda County. Wow, that is such an intense period of time. And what an intense experience. I'm sure that was an enormous relief that the monster's no longer on the loose, but it had to have been a little scary for you personally. It's your responsibility. Back at Kemper's mother's house, police officers continue the forensic search of the property. And while raking through the back garden, discover Cynthia Shaw's head buried around four feet deep near the fence. It wasn't long until the press got a hold of the story. Tom Honig was a reporter at the Santa Cruz Sentinel at the time. He remembers this first piece he wrote about Ed Kemper. Tuesday afternoon, April 24th, 1973. 
Two women slain in Aptos' home, son of one held. The unclothed bodies of an Aptos woman and her woman friend were found stuffed in closets at the women's home early today, the sheriff's department reported. Authorities in Pueblo, Colorado have arrested the slain woman's son, Edmund Emil Kemper, 24, in connection with the deaths. Still unresolved locally are slayings of at least five co-eds, Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu of UCSC, Mary Guilfoyle and Cynthia Shaw of Cabrillo College, and Marianne Pesch, a Fresno State College co-ed whose severed head was discovered last August in the Santa Cruz Mountains at Loma Prieta. What's it like looking back at that and seeing those missing people, knowing what you know now? It's actually still emotional to me to have to have that, to see the names, because what I always think is how what their life would have been like, what their what their children would have been, what they might have succeeded at. It's horrible to think that life was just snuffed out without any reason. It's still very, very sad. I think I, I think it's sadder to me now because I didn't understand that what happens when time goes on. It's worth remembering that despite confessing to the police that he'd also committed the murders of Anita Luchessa, Marianne Pesch, Cynthia Shaw, Iko Ku, Rosalind Thorpe, and Alice Liu, the press was playing catch-up. What did you think when he was arrested, and what were your impressions of him? There was a lot of relief, because when the story came out about the way he had fled, had killed his mother and her friend, and had fled to Pueblo, Colorado. It really made sense that this was somebody who had done an awful lot of things. There was really the hope as, my God, they finally got him. But then the work just started for the police. I mean, he was a different breed of cattle than you're going to get in mass murders because he was very intelligent, very well-spoken, very in possession of the facts around his case and who he was and what he did. I think much in the way that I reacted, which was horror and relief at the same time. Like, this episode just actually might be over, but isn't it horrible what he did? At the time, we didn't know half of the unspeakable events that he had perpetrated on his mother. All that came out much later. There were some fantastical rumors of that coming out at the time. I wasn't going for the goriest details. My details were... Is he charged? Did he do it? Are these other crimes tied to him? What the hell's going on here? You know, having a head buried in your backyard is pretty damn weird. You don't need to use strong language. You just reported it. That's a pretty strong image. Just writing that he found a head in a backyard. Yeah, it's sensational enough. It's like the old saying is, you know, the fire is pretty interesting all by itself. It doesn't need your help. The story goes from local to national to global news, and it's all happening as Mickey Aloofy is traveling with Kemper from Pueblo, Colorado to Santa Cruz. I mean, this is getting international media, so everybody wanted to know, and he was eating it up. He loved it. He loved the notoriety. Tell me more. Okay, one time we had to stop and get gas, and we had to use the restroom, so I had to take him into the restroom. And he was wearing this leather jacket that had the fringe like cowboys wear, you know, all that sort of thing. And his transportation belt, which is a chain, and he's handcuffed to that. So I took him into the restroom, and when we came out, apparently somebody had seen us, and there was a little crowd that had gathered. So he was just kind of strutting, you know, walking around and posing for people. 
And so he was just digging it. He really loved it. The juxtaposition between this behavior and the brutality of the killings is breathtaking. What on earth could drive a son to inflict such violence on his own mother, let alone murder her friend for seemingly no reason? Coming up, we discover a secret about Kemper that has been hiding in plain sight. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. There's something you need to know about Edmund Kemper, something the detectives at the time did not have access to, but were given a tantalizing hint. When they looked at his police record, the one that said he had a juvenile record that was sealed, they noticed something else too. Back in the 1970s, sealed information was literally blocked out with a black marker, but markers don't always hide information as well as they should. When the record clerk pulled out Kemper's card, detectives were able to make out three numbers. Terry Medina explains. You could read 187 through the black mark, which is the California Penal Code section for murder in Madera County, California. The reason why it was blacked out is he had his record expunged because he had killed his grandparents when he was 15. 
Let's get some background here. At 15 years old, Kemper was sent to live with his paternal grandparents, Maud Matilda Huey Kemper and his namesake, Edmund Emil Kemper. He used to use his grandfather's rifle to kill animals. And on August 27, 1964, after an argument with his grandmother, he shot her dead. And then when his grandfather returned home, he shot him too. He confessed to his mother, who told him to call the police. He was arrested and sent to Atascadero State Hospital. Mickey Alufi explains further. He had been sent to Atascadero for violent offenders, and he was subsequently released. He was released to the custody of his mother. Then at one point, this is during the, the murders that he was committing, he went to Fresno and met with his psychologist, but they actually declared him to be normal and that he's not a threat to society. And they wrote a letter to the court indicating that his record should be sealed to allow him a normal life. And at the same time, he had a girl's head in the trunk of his car. Oh my gosh, that's so visual. It really makes you think how different things might have been had his records not been sealed. Why do you think he turned himself in? Over the period of three or four days when he was on the run, I think that he was started to kind of hallucinate because he was just fatigued, knew he was going to get caught. He contemplated maybe having a shootout with the cops and going out that way. But then he figured, well, then nobody would really know all of the truth. So that's when he decided to turn himself in. Yeah, you can't get famous or infamous if you don't tell your story. Bingo. You know, there are a lot of theories on this. There's the, oh, there was this tension building up between he and his mom. But I come from more of a biological sense and neuroscience perspective. And I believe that people are born with deficiencies and that when those deficiencies are triggered by environment, it can lead to this type of behavior. You know him so intimately. Why do you think he was killing people? I think that there are a couple of reasons that make sense to me. Number one is that when he was younger, he was pretty much abandoned by his father. Even during this whole process, he showed up at his father's door because he wanted to spend time with his father. His father shunned him again, took him to his parents' house where he ended up killing them. After we're doing all of the interviews with him, I asked him, I says, why, Ed, why, why did you do these things? And his response to me at the time, and I thought it was kind of telling, he says that during his formative years, when people establish relationships with the opposite sex, he said, I was locked up. I did not have any opportunity to experience that. So therefore, I'm getting back at society by killing those that they value the most, the young white females. But he didn't just kill strangers. Ed Kemper killed three members of his own family and one family friend. I want to dig into this a little bit more, so I speak with author Emerson Murray. A lot of people had bad relationships with their mothers, but they don't mutilate them. What do we miss about Edmund Kemper if we only focus on his bad relationship with his mom? I think that he had emotional problems. He was tall and gangly, and he got beat up a lot. His sister said that she remembers them getting chased by groups of girls, that he wouldn't stick up for his sisters, that there was a neighborhood bully that had accused him of murdering his dog. And that just went on for years, the way that they tormented him about killing this dog. And, and Kemper was saying, I was at school. I did not kill this dog. 
and in his head, I think, just had a lot of revenge fantasies, a lot of ideas. And he took that out on the family cat, and he took that out on his mother by hovering over her while she's sleeping. And people say, oh, she locked him in the basement. Well, what do you do with an eight-year-old standing over you with a hammer? I'm not calling her a saint by any means. I think that she had a lot of issues. She tried to be stern and tried to be both a mother and a father to him. And so she wrote about that when he was admitted to a Tascadero. For all these years, we've only heard from Edmund Kemper. You know, she wasn't perfect by any means, but you know, she wasn't this monster. It's kind of a shame. I mean, listen, she's not winning Mother of the Year awards, but she's certainly not the worst mother I've ever heard of. And the worst mothers I've ever heard of didn't necessarily raise serial killers. So it's more complicated, of course. I think it also, it graduated. You know, once you kill cats and then you kill your grandparents, that's there, that's with you. You have done that. And it becomes just a step to continue that. It, you know, for you or I, that's a massive leap. And a massive, massive leap. But once it's happened, that's sort of, I hate to say it, but like in your wheelhouse of human experiences, then I think it just becomes easier and easier. And once you've done it again and again, and it's just been much, much easier. I want to understand why he took the life of his mother's best friend, too. Terry Medina shares his insights. I found the murder of Carnell's friend, Sally Hallett, to be disturbing in a very different way. He just killed her for an alibi just to buy time. Obviously, all of the murders are disgusting and disturbing, but that one was just so mechanical. He knows he's going to get caught. He knows that it's not like going to save his life to kill this woman, but he does it anyway, just to buy a little bit more time. It was so bizarre to me. You're exactly right. A thought pattern. This guy is very intelligent. He had a very high IQ. He'd been through the system once. He'd been through psychiatric testing. He'd been through interview upon interview. He'd been in custody and being evaluated until he was 25. This guy, as I think Donald Lunday, a, a forensic psychiatrist, said he was test contaminated by the time he had been arrested for these crimes. By contaminated, Terry is referring to the time Kemper spent at Atascadero as a teen and young man. He aided the psychiatrists in the sorting of assessment forms. In other words, he knew exactly the right thing to say to the right people. I really want to know what Donald T. Lundy thought of Kemper. So I speak to his son, Monty. My dad thought he was a, you know, a, a real sadistic sociopath. I mean, in my dad's eyes, he was a very special case, and he was pretty interested in Kemper's backstory because the type of murderer that he was was not, as my dad would say, a typical paranoid schizophrenic. He had a very, very challenging childhood, as many know. There is a reason there were these mass murderers in California all doing these horrible crimes at the same time. And part of my dad's conclusion was the system is not taking care of these people. We are not trying to treat these people. We're warehousing and we let them out and then they go off their meds and then bad things start to happen. You bring up so many good points, and it's so interesting for me to hear them from the point of view of a doctor in the 1970s. You had people who just slipped through the cracks and became very dangerous. There's one piece of audio that I think is really telling. It was recorded by Donald T. Lundy a couple of months after Kemper had been captured. In it, 
he offers a rare glimpse into his inner world. And Michelle, the next one before him, both of those two have talked to her sensibly. That was my front speaking now. I won't go in here the side. What is that like? Well, that's, well, that's me right now. That's you. That's me, 99 to 99 tenths percent of the time. You can even get it down finer than that. Well, that tiny percent. So everybody has to. I have to appear sane to everybody. You know. Okay, but how about that? Uh, that very rare the percentage when you don't put on the facade. What do you? What do you like then? It depends. It's uh, I'm super whatever I'm supposed to be. Like I'm, I'm supposed to be mad at somebody, and it gets, it gets me at the wrong time. I'll just blow it. I don't jump on them. I'll tell them. No matter who it is or who I was afraid to say it before, I get right in the face of telling them. It could be ranged from there all the way up to murderers. There's clearly more to a psychological profile going on. This is the kind of language you would hear from a psychopath. I'm in awe of how calm Lundy is listening to these revelations, and I wonder if he was ever intimidated. Yes. In particular, he said it was a little harrowing to be in the room with Kemper, because Kemper was six foot nine. He was a huge guy. And at one point, I guess he even got up to show my dad how he strangled a particular woman and put his hands around my dad. I mean, it was all agreed that, okay, this is all right. Go ahead and show me what you did. But my dad said a few things about these situations in general. One, his only defense was a very hot cup of coffee. And he didn't drink coffee. He just would bring in a hot cup of coffee. He figured if something went wrong, he could throw that in the face of the assailant and call for the guards, and that would give him enough time to get out of the situation. So it was it was a very, very challenging situation to go into a cell where he's alone with this assailant. Once they established a rapport, he kind of got a feel for where they were coming from. But when you're dealing with people that are insane, you don't know what's going on in their head at any given moment. And you also don't know how they might view you as an opportunity. I turn to Terry Medina. Kemper's a personality. He is outgoing. He is likable. He is the most efficient killer I've ever known about. And I've studied behavioral sciences at the Behavioral Sciences Unit at the FBI Academy. This guy, he's just incredible. Everybody says, oh my God, these people must be crazy. Well, you know, they're not all crazy. Being crazy as you and I, you know, it is way different than criminally insane. It's a completely different standard. But it no longer matters what law enforcement think. He's going to go to trial. How would a jury view him? Monty Lundy shares insights from his father, Donald. He would say insane people can reason logically but it comes from an insane premise. So everything is messed up. You can be mentally ill from a psychological standpoint and yet still meet the qualification for sanity, for being sane in terms of the legal standard. You have to know right from wrong, and it's a very broad standard in the legal sense. And yet those of us who work in mental health and crime know that most of the time, you're not dealing with somebody who's completely sane when they've committed these types of murders. Because let's face it, normal, sane people don't commit murder. Right. That's true. And my dad was always focused on their emotional state, not whether they know right or wrong, because like Kemper knew what he was doing, but he was still doing it. But 
what was his emotional state at that time when he was committing those crimes. He felt that was a more important way to focus on the issue. So Kemper had already gone through the system for committing a double homicide and had managed to convince the experts that he was no longer a threat. This matters. Why? Because Kemper's defense team is about to attempt an insanity plea. And he's not the only one. While Kemper is in custody, Mullen has been quietly working with the defense team himself. And they're about to argue the very same thing. In the next episode, the killers attempt to make insanity pleas. And Santa Cruz seeks justice. Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen is brought to you by Arrow Media for ID. Your host is Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 